All right, we're going to talk today about a Christian's funeral. So, uh, maybe you'll need one someday. And so, this could be very practical. Now, I, I want to say something that we're going to look at this from more of a historical background today. Maybe there'll come an opportunity to enlarge on this in the future. But when we think about a Christian funeral, today that Christian funeral has morphed. That funeral, Christian funeral has become a memorial service. Or the Christian funeral has become a, quote, celebration of life. This is what we've done to what has traditionally been known in the Christian church as a, as a Christian funeral. Now, I want to read uh, from John chapter 19, verse 38, and this talks about the burial, and then in chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus. So after Jesus' death, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now later on, you know how Peter and John come and then later Jesus appears there to Mary Magdalene. And we have the whole witness and testimony of the, the bodily resurrection of the Lord, which basically began to change everything that people thought about funerals. Well, here's an account of, from a chapter in this book, and this is a great little book. You might want to consider it. Um, the title is called Accompany Them With Singing, The Christian Funeral. It's a brand-new book, and it's going over the history of how Christians buried their dead. In this chapter, chapter 4, whatever happened to the Christian funeral, the, the writer says this woman, Elizabeth Jansen, uh, died in a nursing home in Minneapolis. Uh, immediately, the staff of the nursing home called the daughter who lived in St. Louis. The daughter in St. Louis made arrangements to have her mother's body cremated. She had been visiting once a month very faithfully, but the death had come unexpectedly. After the body was cremated, the remains were sent to St. Louis, and after a number of weeks, 
the family got together and went to a vacation spot on a lake that was the place where the family had gone in their earlier years, and they took the remains of this woman, Elizabeth Jansen, and they threw them out onto the waters of that lake. A couple months later, they made arrangements in her home church there in Minneapolis to have a memorial service in which friends of this older lady came to express to the family uh, their uh, sense of loss at this woman's passing. Now, in all honesty, if I was to ask for a show of hands, how many of you have experienced something that is similar to that, I think almost all of us would say yes, that's something that's not uncommon to our own experience. Now, as we look at this whole idea of a Christian funeral, we're going to look at briefly some of the ideas that are found in the scriptures of the New Testament. We want to consider what the Roman culture was doing at the time. We want to consider what the Jewish culture was doing at the time. And finally, consider what was the impact of Jesus' bodily resurrection, what was the impact of an open tomb, and then the influence of what was then understood to be Jesus' bodily resurrection and his bodily ascension into heaven and the prospect of his bodily return at the end of the age. Well, as we look in the New Testament, we see a number of deaths in which Jesus was directly involved. In the one case, we see the, the situation at the home of Jairus and Jairus's daughter. Then we see the account in uh, John's gospel about Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus with uh, Mary and Martha. Now, we get from this an idea of how Jewish people in that time dealt with death. And so as we look at this prior to the resurrection, if we are looking Mark chapter 5, verse 38, where Jesus comes to the house of Jairus and the girl has just died, well, they went in and as Peter, James, and John and Jesus and the parents come into the house, it says there is weeping, loud weeping, and there's wailing. Now, that's the situation that was very common. In Luke chapter 8, it says there was weeping and lamentation. In Matthew chapter 9, it said that there were flute players and the place was in noisy disorder. You remember how Jesus talked about, some of you will say, we played the fruit flute for you and you did not mourn and there was this whole idea of professional mourners that attached themselves to the funerals in order to raise the level of the expression of grief whether naturally to because the people felt this grief or if you didn't grieve for your departed in an appropriate way, people might think you suspect in your relationship with them. So to uh, uh, make sure that that didn't happen, they would employ 
both flute players and professional mourners that would come there and have various cycles of emotion in which the people that had come to visit the departed's family could express that emotion and join with them in an intensity of, of, of grief. Now, I don't want to misplay that and say that we shouldn't have any grief. I think the biggest ministerial mistake that I ever made in my life was not being able to assess as a very new pastor in my early 30s when a, a family lost uh, a child in a car wreck, the mother had lung cancer, the father died 10 days later as the result of the car wreck. They had already buried one child when they had come to the community some eight or 10 years previously, just on the visit they'd come to the community to take a job as a, a doctor in the community. And um, they were from, one was from Canada, one was from British Guyana, and they were India Indians. They were part of a Presbyterian church. They had been raised Presbyterian. But the Oriental in them and the Oriental expression of grief was so much over my experience in my context, I'd never seen anything like it. Funeral director says, you got to get this woman out of here. Well, I assisted him. It was a terrible mistake. I don't think she was grieving without hope, but she was deeply grieving in a way that I was totally unused to. So we're not saying that we should not have real senses of grief and mourning. But we should not grieve as those who have no hope. That's part of what we're seeing here in these passages about Jairus' daughter. We see something else in uh, John chapter 11, verse 19 and verse 31, uh, where you see that uh, the whole sense of Lazarus, that Lazarus, as they prepared his body, his body was wrapped uh, it, it, like a mummy and that he was placed into a tomb the tomb had been closed and from what best we can understand he must have been buried very quickly after his death because he says he'd been in the tomb four days already now when we think of a lot of the expressions that we find in primarily the deaths that we see in the Old Testament and the deaths that we see in the gospel accounts, we have to come into a realization that uh, their area of the world and their climate would be almost identical to what we experience here today in Macon. If you were to look at Atlanta, Georgia and its latitude, you'll find it's almost identical to Jerusalem. So the temperature ranges that we experience here, which can be quite intense in the summer, it would lead to a quick decay. They would bury the bed, dead very quickly. Now, an interesting thing is when we come to the book of Acts. So what's happened by the time we come to the book of Acts? Jesus 
is resurrected. He's ascended. And everything's changed. Now, we don't get a great deal of deaths and burials as we move on in the New Testament, but we do have the one account of, in Acts chapter 9 of the woman Dorcas. You remember Tabitha, Dorcas? And this woman was just tremendously loved by, and we're told that she was a disciple very clearly, but when you see this about her, there were other disciples that were there, uh, women who were widows, people who were referred to as saints, probably some men and some women. And when she died, the first thing they did was they washed her body, they put on some kind of a garment, and they placed her in an upper room, probably the idea of a place that was cooler, and then because they had heard that Peter was in a town of close proximity, they went and got Peter. Isn't it interesting what these people are thinking? They're thinking there's hope for this woman. She may have died, but there is hope. And so they go and they bring Peter. Peter comes immediately Now, I guess following Jesus' custom at the home of Jairus, Peter put everybody out of the room, and then he knelt down and prayed, and the woman woke up, she sat up, Peter called the others from outside, and they came in, and it said that Peter presented her to them alive. And, And so you begin to see here that there is something different They treated her body with intense respect, and they hoped for her to return to life. That's the simplest thing that you could take from that text in Acts chapter 9. Now, we take a quick glimpse at Jewish uh, influence. We see that as soon as there was a death and loss, it was followed by this intense and protracted experience expression of grief. There were the use of what were called professional mourners. These come into the consideration because the professional mourners, uh, in, in so often in other aspects of death, the number and the qualifications of these professional mourners that were on scene were directly in correspondence to a person's financial ability. If you didn't have much, you wouldn't have many, and if you didn't have much, you wouldn't have the best. But if you had a lot of money, you might have a bunch of them, and you would have the best of them. And that's what we see uh, reflected in various histories and in what we see in the New Testament. The body was cleansed, but But because this was still in relationship to the Old Testament, whoever dealt with the body was considered ceremonially and ritually defiled and unclean because that body was considered religiously and ceremonially defiled and unclean. That's something just to... Think about, that's a huge 
difference from what we see after the resurrection. After the body was cleansed, it was wrapped in some way with ointments. It was placed in the tomb. The tomb was closed. Now, I don't want to get into all the aspects that you could read about, about the protracted and the intense expressions of, of um, mourning, but it went on for a year. And in some cases, the oldest male that was attached to this family would have to every single day same, say the same synagogue prayer every single day for a year. This is an interesting aspect of things, that after a year, the oldest male was to go into the tomb. They were to gather up the body, all the flesh being basically fallen away, and they're just being bones and tendon tissue and things of that nature then that part of this was put in another manner, and it was put in an ossuary. Now, you remember how it, Jesus talks about the Pharisees, and you remember what he called them? White washed tombs. Remember that? The idea of whitewashed tombs was the ossuaries where these people were placed, finally, and then these areas that were, they were finally laid were whitewashed. Now, you might think it's out of respect. You know that, and I don't know if this continues on to today, but it used to be the history in Macon that the youth of the Jewish community would go to the cemetery every year and they would wash every single Jewish headstone out there in Rose Hill Community or Cemetery. But that's just until recently, if it, if it is completely been abandoned it's only been recently that it's been abandoned but the whitewashed tombs was the idea of this it was a signal this is a tomb if you come too near to the tomb because there's dead bones in here you'll be ceremonially defiled so stay away from the whitewashed tomb that was the idea you get the idea of the sense of the body that the body is remaining in some way, unclean, unfit, something to not be involved with. Well, those customs, a great many of them in other parts of the world where Jewish people live, continue to be practiced in identically the same ways that they were practiced uh, during the time of Christ. Roman burial at this time was in a transition. Up until this particular area, the bulk of people who died in a Roman context were cremated. But because, you know, we tend today to think, well, cremation is a real option, and what is the key reason we want to cremate today? Expense. Precisely expense. Well, the issue in that day is you didn't do it with gas, with forced air. You had to do this with wood, and wood was expensive. And so it might take an expensive amount of wood 
to completely cremate a body. So people had gone back to burying in uh, the body, just simply in the grave. Now, the difference in Romans was this. Typically, because of their mythological views of death in the sense of gods, goddesses, and demigods, and things of this nature, the ceremonies were almost entirely done at night. So this was a huge difference from Jewish custom. The processions were made with a group of people carrying the body. Others were carrying torches. The idea of the torches were, guess what? Fend off evil spirits. And then they would take this uh, person and where the financial ability was there, the mourners would be dressed in clothing of death. So two colors, take a guess. One color is going to be, the other color is going to be red. And that's the way the Roman mourners went about. Again, depending on a person's financial status, they might not have any kind of a tombstone. They might have a modest tombstone, or they might have a monument. All of this. And they were very, uh, whatever you want to call it, fatalistic. One tomb in Latin, it says this. I was not. So this is spelled out in Latin, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. <laughs> now that became a model. And so, again, because of expense, to have this chipped into a stone, the people had a shorthand of this, and they could just take two letters that well for was is just one letter. So they'd have two letters for was not, one letter for was, am not, two letters, and then don't care. I think there were three letters in that. That was their shorthand. That was an expense issue. Keep it inexpensive. So that's what they would often put on their on their tombs. Uh, often the dead would be buried with things that people thought would be helpful in making the transition from the world of the living to the, the place of the dead. So uh, if the person had a pet, the pet might be killed and be put in the grave with them. If a child was dead, they might put the child's toys in there. Uh, oftentimes the dead were, had a coin placed under their tongue. Where did the idea of grave robbing come? This was to pay the person that would carry the dead, as it were, in the netherworld from the grave to the place of the dead. Well, this was the common practice. Now, why is this important? Well, one of the key things is early Christians were theological. And they were evangelistic. And so they looked at death from a Christian perspective, and they looked at the funeral as an opportunity to manifest their faith openly. 
and it stood in stark contrast to either the Jewish or the Roman custom. Now, because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, because of his ascension, because of his promised return, because of the hope that we talk about in the scripture of a bodily resurrection of the saints, this began to transform the thinking of Christians at the time of death. Um, there are three simple divisions that I'll cover today. There's an num- enormous amount of material on this. But there would be the preparation of the body, there would be the procession to the tomb, and there would be the placement of the body in the tomb. Now, in relationship with the present preparation of the body, our Presbyterian denomination, again, if you were a part of any kind of something of the Southern Baptist Church or uh, an independent church and you've got old traditional roots primarily dating back to England, then you share with the Presbyterian Church the confession of faith and catechisms of the Presbyterian Church. And so one of the catechism questions, number 37, would be this. What benefits do believers receive at the time of their death? In the catechism, taking the testimony of the scripture, said this. Believers at the time of their death are made perfect in holiness, and their souls do immediately enter into the presence of the Lord. Good. We have a soul. When we die, as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today, you with me in paradise. But it says of the body, but their bodies, and here's the key phrase, still being united to Christ. Now, why is it that we say that our bodies, even at our death, are still united to Christ? Where is Christ now? How is he at the right hand of God? No. Physically, his body is in heaven. Now, we call his bodily presence in heaven the earnest. Now, if you get into something into uh, banking, it's not a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Slightly different word. But the idea means it is the absolute promise of a reality. And so when we die, our bodies are still united to Christ because Christ is bodily in heaven. And that's, that's glorified but resurrected. And so this has influenced people long before the writers of the catechism wrote this thing down in this manner. This is the way Christian people thought from the time of Paul on. Now... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul writes concerning those who have died, remember what he said, first thing? I would not have you grieve as the heathens grieve. So there is a key element. Did it say we should not grieve? No. Uh, But we shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope and so we we have hope and because of that well that whole aspect of the way christians grieved and didn't grieve 
became a witness to the people around them at the time of them experiencing loss. Like Jesus, like Dorcas, we know that the body was cared for with the utmost dignity. Now, in the past, there was always, whatever you want to call them, grave diggers. There were always people that were in the mortuary business, but to a great degree, a lot of the care of the body was done by the immediate family and the Christians in the community that took care of the body. I won't go into all the details of what they do to a body that's not going to be embalmed, but it's very, you know, it's very well recorded. But the body was taken care of with the utmost sense of dignity. The body was in some way clothed. Now, in, in certain parts of the world, the wrappings were used. In some parts of the world today, the wrappings continue to be used. In other places, a white, white, baptismal-type gown would be put on the person, and the person would be interred in that, or today, primarily, proper clothing. And so uh, Chips talked about his buddy that was a preacher that went to a town and forgot his suit and... Uh, found a, somebody that had a, a funeral home. They, oh, yeah, we can help you out with a suit. The back was cut out. No, the back wasn't cut out, smart Alec. <laughs> That's what they did when they took a picture of us up at Paris Island. They put us in a uniform. There was no back in it. You just slid into it and slid out of it when they took our picture. That was it. It had no pockets. Yeah. So the funeral funeral garments that they had for men, you ain't got no need for no pockets, this is an extra expense, cost money to put pockets in there, don't need them, don't have them. What's the old phrase, follow the money, <laughs> it's all about the money ma'am, alright, so the proper clothing. But there was no sense, now catch this, if the Christian family and the Christian extended community is dealing with the body with the utmost sense of respect, they don't see the body as any longer being what? Unclean and defiled. That changed with the resurrection of Christ. You see that? That's the big difference. And so the Jewish people would look at these Christian people burying their dead and they would go, that's unthinkable. They're touching a dead person. And they're not even a bit worried about it. And they treated them this way. Well, that was a huge witness. And we're done. And we got two points to go. All right. We'll get to it in another day. It was all done in daylight. The procession and the time at the tomb was done with singing. You need to think about what you want. If you're, or somebody else is going to choose it. 
if you don't like in the garden, you better do something about it right now. <laughs> because that's what's going to happen. <laughs> You've got to think about it. But at, at the time of the person's dying, all the way through, the Christian community was singing. They were reciting scripture, they were grieving, and they were talking about the hope of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And it was a movement that a person had been baptized into Christ and has now entered into his glory. And that was a continuity of thought from one to the other, from the beginning to the end. What we do for our loved ones is we carry them the last Christian mile that they cannot carry themselves. Let's pray. Bless us, Father, as we've looked at this and as we consider this, and we see things today that witness to a great change in our culture away from a Christian sense of burial to more of an accommodation to expense. Help us to think about the witness that we continually bear to an unbelieving world in the way we care for our dead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.